If two's company and three's a crowd, four is clearly an experiment in film production with familiar names, two of the hottest film directors of their time, and one New Year's Eve never to forget. What could possibly go wrong? Well, if you're Ted the Bellboy, everything. If you're just a film lover, nothing. As we're here to prove to you that four rooms is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. Look, we have got a quadruple threat for you here today uh, on the show. And with me to talk about the movie Four Rooms is my lovely wife, Carrie. Carrie, how are you doing today? Doing great. How are you? <laughs> I am all good. Now, have to have a bit of a disclaimer here before we get into talking about this. You are a massive Quentin Tarantino fan. So the fact that we are here talking about Four Rooms, does this, does this gut a little bit? It stings a little, but mm. um, also... A huge Robert Rodriguez fan. Let's not forget that. I was about to say, yeah, like... like It's the buddy rule. It's the Kevin Smith <laughs> rule. Always work with your friends. Mm-hmm. And I love that this movie has both gentlemen working together, side by side, creating... A room of doom. Let's bring it on. <laughs> they they share the share the glory, but they also share the pain on this one as how, well. How is this a contender? How are we even sitting here discussing four rooms? What is wrong with the critics? Hang your head in shame. <laughs> for shame. This is very much a, a critics suck driven uh, episode of the of the podcast because, as you're going to hear, like this is very much one of those the critics had one say, but the fans kind of had another. But before we kind of get into the meat of it all, let us take four rooms and trailerize it. On New Year's Eve. One man will learn a harsh lesson. Never say yes to being the only one working on New Year's Eve. Tim Roth does his best to prevent the worst from happening at the Monsignor, a hotel so run down it's a wonder anyone actually stays there. Laugh along with Ted as he deals with witchcraft murder, arson, child abandonment, hostage situations, mutilation, and having Kathy Griffin as a boss. Tim Roth stars in Four Rooms. Rated R. (laughs) (laughs) That took me everything to not laugh. It, it seems like such a pleasant film, doesn't it? I have to say, I'm actually very disappointed in your write-up, Jason. Oh, what did I miss? Okay, so you did not give a tip of the hat to uh, clerks. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Uh, Dante is not your, your bellhop. Although, that being said, oh. if Dante was the bellhop, like I could see Kevin Smith doing the four rooms with Dante as the bellhop. Oh. oh. Dear Kevin Smith. <laughs> we should tag him on this one. Kev... Uh, Kevin Smith, if you are looking for an idea, create your own four-room style with Dante as the bellhop. You're welcome. I want to see your version 
of the man from Hollywood. Right? Dear Kevin Smith, please make this happen. Bring all your friends. It could be one of those fun movies. Oh, my gosh. Right? Yes. Okay. Rosario Dawson (laughs) in the... uh, the you, missing ingredient, you know, which he, is coven room. Oh, even bringing Melissa Benoist from Supergirl because he was directing some of those episodes as well. Like, just bring everybody in. Just bring them. Who, bring anyone, the whole crew. Absolutely. Anyone who has worked. Oh, and Mark Hamill. Bring in Mark Hamill. I could see Jason Mewes as the uh, just the, psychotic husband. <laughs> I, as, how else do I put it? We're, we're basically going to, I think, in the process of this podcast and talking about the original four rooms. Figure out cast and script a Kevin Smith version of Four Rooms, and I'm kind of okay with See, that. We'll do the work for you there, right? Mr. Smith. Um, who would be Antonio Banderas's character? Ooh, you know, we we need to out get of into the that Smith verse. <laughs> uh, that's a very good question. That is a very good question, and I have no clue who it would be. But let's go through who Ben the- Affleck, <laughs> probably the f- Shark no, from Jaws. No, no, Jason Lee. Jason Lee as Antonio Banderas. Try and picture mm. it. Maybe not. Maybe mm. he's the man from Hollywood. Mm. Maybe he's the Tarantino. Okay. I can see, I can see Jason Lee's Tarantino, but let, let's talk about this version of Four Rooms <laughs> before we continue. To, we'll just make a, a podcast separate from this and literally just send it to. We won't even put it out there. We'll just send it to Kevin Smith saying, "Here, listen to this. You're welcome." And that's pretty much how it's going to go. Uh, but this movie, Four Rooms, stars, and I'm just going to give a partial list here because there is a cavalcade of talent in this film. Uh, it stars Tim Roth, Antonio Banderas, Valeria Galina. Madonna, Ioni Sky, Jennifer Beals, an uncredited role by Bruce Willis, Quentin Tarantino, Marissa Tomei, and so much more. However, there is an almost starred in this because the role of Ted, as played by Tim Roth, was almost played by Steve Buscemi. Mr. Pink was unavailable, so Mr. Orange <laughs> stepped up. I don't know. If I if if I would prefer Tim Roth or see Buscemi because Buscemi as Ted I could very easily see. Uh, okay, you know I love Buscemi. Mm-hmm. Love Buscemi. Mm-hmm. Mad respect. No disrespect here, but a lot of the physical and facial humor was made perfect by Tim Roth, and I cannot mm-hmm. see like. I think near the end, I could see Buscemi, like, you know, when, you know, by the time when he's done. It would be a far darker mm-hmm. tone. Quite possibly. I mean, there's this, there's the scene where he's talking to Margaret before he actually gets to talk to his boss, where he's kind of recapping everything that happened. I could see Buscemi doing that part. Um, but I, I, <laughs> And I, here's <laughs> me walking out the door right now right exactly <laughs> exactly uh it was directed by now now it's four rooms there are four directors because this movie is four stories it was directed by allison anders alexander rockwell robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino uh obviously you're going to be familiar with robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino if you're not familiar with allison anders she might be best known for directing gas food lodging and then alexander rockwell also uh directed somebody to love however this 
was almost five rooms Mm -hmm. because Richard Linkletter, he of Dazed and Confused, a Scanner Darkly and School of Rock director fame, was slated to contribute his story, but it backed out at the last minute. Um, I don't know if five rooms would be too much because four rooms kind of felt like a decent runtime as far as this film went it was a good pace it mm-hmm. was um 98 minutes so just a little bit over yeah a buck and a half and i i think you're right i think the progression of the madness and the bad things that happened all in one evening mm-hmm. uh to our, our poor bellhop um bellboy there Ted the bellboy <laughs> um I I, th- I think you're right. I think it would have just been that little bit too much. And, you know, an even number is always kind of, it's just easier. Mm-hmm. Like it just, and I really don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I would be fascinated. Do we know what that story would have? I, I honestly don't know. I, I would be curious um, if it ever was leaked, and I honestly don't know if it has been leaked or not, or if it's actually out there. Um, what a rich Richard Linkletter addition to this would be would be very interesting because you know just going through that list, uh, Days to Confuse, Scanner Darkly, and School of Rock. I mean, those are like very very cool films. I mean, I mean, I I mean honestly, I wouldn't know what a, a Scanner Darkly version of Four Rooms would look like. That would just be creepy as as hell. Um, but clearly, clearly, there's it would have been. Cool either way but i think four rooms made this a a decent run time when it came to accolades however this one chalked up one because madonna actually won the worst supporting actress at the 16th annual razzies and just to tell you how bad they they, they the razzies you know quote unquote like this one she beat out gina gershon and Lynn Tucci from Showgirls to win the Razzie for Worst Supporting Actress. If you're beating Showgirls at the Razzies, there's something to be said about that. But I I honestly think that that's a little, it might be harsh because, I mean, and we'll talk about Madonna in a little bit, but I think it's one of those things where you can't really single her out as a worst actress in the small limited screen time that she had. I think that's just that. I think that's just kind of hating on Madonna for Madonna's sake. I agree. I agree because um, I mean, really there again in a very small portion of the duration of this movie. I mean, what would you say? Like each room was given you could say about 20, 20, 20 to 25 minutes. I mean, probably 20 minutes and then you have to put, throw in 10 minutes for the credits. And then there was the scene on the phone uh, trying to get his boss on the phone. So 15 to 20 minutes per storyline in this. Right. And I thought her delivery was good. Um, there was one glaring issue with Madonna playing a witch, however. Really? Um Madonna was wearing a cross in the movie mm. and it is widely known or apparently a fact that witches would never wear a cross that they would wear now, a pentagram. Now, 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 Carrie, don't preach. 
It's, it's stuck in your well head now, played. isn't it? Carry well, don't preach. I'm in trouble deep. No, well no, no. played. Well and played. No. <laughs> but um, that was just a little tidbit that I picked up um, in in reading. I personally would. I did. It was lost on me watching the movie, and then it was like, oh, oh yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. So I think I think I don't know if that couldn't even be the reason. Bad the witch. But I think Bad you're right. <laughs> I think people are just. Crapping on Madonna because... Because Madonna. Madonna. Because Madonna. Um, At the box office, this didn't do all that well. Now, it had a $4 million budget and a worldwide gross of $4.2 million. So, made its money back, Mm -hmm. barely, if that. Now, as far as the uh, how it did in comparison to everything else, when Four Rooms debuted it debuted on christmas day 1995 so taking a look at the weekend box office charts for that weekend four rooms finished debuted 18th 18th well when i think christmas movies the <laughs> last one on my list and i love this movie would be four rooms it's, that's it's, not like Die Hard. Not a Christmas movie. Not just, just to give you a New perspective. Year's, maybe. Right. <laughs> now, the funny thing is, this still, debuting at 18th, was still the highest debuting film that weekend. Number one was Toy Story, and nothing's going to be Toy Story, right? You had Toy Story, you had Jumanji, you had um, Father of the Bride Part 2, you had Heat in there. Uh, like, just there, There's a very good list of films. And there is a caveat to this. And then even though it only finished in 18th, it also only premiered in 319 theaters. To put that into perspective, Toy Story was in 2,574 theaters, so it's not like it debuted to wide release. And I honestly don't know why it it, it uh, debuted in so few theaters. Probably because there was a, a smorgasbord of all this you know Christmas content that was already out there. But it's limited release, so of course that's going to limit the box office take. It might have cracked the top 10 had it been a wide release, because at number 10 was the American president at four, you know, just over $4 million, that box office. So put it in the same number of theaters, it probably would have done much better. So it's a limited release, so that's probably why it's still, still the highest debuting film that weekend, but still debuted at 18th. I also don't know... That it's a like theater going movie. Yeah, that's the thing, and and when you think about you know the 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 mid nineties, you know you had films that yeah maybe they had a, a release kind of thing, but these were the kind of films that were going to find their legs on DVD and home video when people still went to the blockbuster. God, I miss the blockbuster. Oh God, I'm so glad that you mentioned (laughs) like the blockbuster or the VHS copy Mm -hmm. because did you know, fun fact, that the Four Rooms video cover was spotted in one Mr. Kevin Smith's Jersey Girl? So you see... You see, Kevin Smith needs to make a remake of Four Rooms in his own style with his own crew kind of thing. He 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 knows it. He just doesn't know it right? yet. Right. That's why we're here. We're here to remind Kevin Smith just how much he loves Four Rooms. And so therefore, he must make his own Four Rooms. You realize we're tagging him on this. 
<laughs> hey Kevin, how you doing? <laughs> Hi, Big Kev. Fan. <laughs> we would really like you to make a four rooms. We'll even direct one for you. No, no, no. But we'd like to go. But if you need help with casting. Right? <laughs> Speaking of casting, let's get to the breakdown here. Oh, but before we do, though, we need to talk about the writings here. Now, audience score, which I'm assuming includes Kevin Smith, was at a 69%. So if you go by the audience score, this film actually shouldn't qualify for this podcast. However, the critics, the critics with a Madonna-sized bug up their ass, 13 percent now is that madonna with the cone bra or no that's madonna with the cross where it shouldn't be <laughs> a 13 percent tomatometer uh but it does have a cinema score of a b minus so i mean it's not like this is a bad film but this is uh, one of those films where the critics just did not dig it and before we get into the breakdown i, I want to hypothesize on this one here Okay, because obviously the biggest draw of this film, I don't think, is the cast. When you think about 1995, Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino are probably two of the biggest draws for people to go see this film. But when you think about um, the the body of work that QT and Robert Rodriguez had done to this point in 1995, like we're we're talking post. Pulp Fiction, we're talking post-Reservoir Dogs. This is not those films. So I wonder if it's one of those things where critics went in expecting that typical QT, Desperado-style film, and they're like, I'm laughing. Why am I laughing? Why should I shouldn't be laughing at a Quentin Tarantino film. Why, why am I laughing? That's, it's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. It's, you know how sometimes, you know, actors kind of get pigeonholed. Right. It's like Jim Carrey does all these comedy movies like Ace Ventura and all that. Then all of a sudden he shows up in, you know, the number 23 and they're like, oh, crap. What did he do? What did he do? But isn't that by definition like acting? Right. That you have a range that you're not, you know, Christopher Walken or Gary Sinise (laughs) playing Gary Sinise playing another version of Gary Sinise. Right. Not not ripping on Gary Sinise. I really do like him. It's the Gary sinise verse where everyone is Gary actor, Sinise. But, you know, uh, right? Like, that's acting, folks. Mm-hmm. If you go into a movie with an expectation, A, you're not only giving yourself a disservice, but the actor who's you know mm-hmm. oh i completely agree like playing a- another role actors yeah. and directors should be encouraged to kind of step outside of their comfort zone in order to be able to expand their repertoire critics however need to kind of get out of their own mental mindset you know if if you walked in and say oh yeah robert rodriguez quentin tarantino people are gonna get shot up people are gonna get bloody probably like you know uh, obviously it wasn't made at the time probably like that hotel artemis kind of thing or just like a you know the raid redemption like where just people get shot up in a hotel and then next thing you know there's this this funky jazz swing music going on and ted the bell boy is is trying to manage all the chaos that's going on it's like this is not what I expected. And I, I wonder if that's just the critics going in with a preconceived notion and this not being that, and then that soured them on it. And again, that's sad. Mm-hmm. And that's really on them. And I don't know. It's like if if that's how you're going to critique movies, mm-hmm. might want to 
I don't know. No, no we're not consider saying. a career change because really mm-hmm. take the movie for what it is. Exactly. And go in with an open mind, yeah. right? Without expectation. And if you don't like it legitimately for the reason that it's a stinker, then okay. okay yeah. Right. Uh, but, but to go into a, a, a film and let's be honest, this is kind of, you're right that it's so different. Mm-hmm. It is, um, I don't want to call it an art piece. I really don't. It's, but, a, it's a passion piece is what it is because you have four directors just kind of having fun with, you know, I mean, you take a look at the Robert Rodriguez directed part of it and it's all the actors that he's used to working with and, you know, his own little signatures all over the place. Like they, they were just having fun. This was, this felt like a movie where it's like, yeah, we're just going to do this, you know, our way. Yes. And I love that. Mm-hmm. And I also, I think a huge part of it is that it was a band apart film. Yes. It was um, Lawrence Bender, Tarantino's production company mm-hmm. in connection with Miramax. Sure. But I really think that they had a lot of power play in that. Um, right. And, and. Yeah. The Tarantino had some muscle reflex at this point in time. Exactly. And at that point, yeah, have fun with it. Mm-hmm. And the audience, well, at least with the audience, yeah, because yeah, the at audience 69%, were there. Yeah, sixty-nine percent. The audience really enjoyed this. The audience did have fun with it, and mm-hmm. that's exactly what it was intended for. Critics suck. That's basically what it boils <laughs> down to. But we let, should we should rename the podcast to Critics Suck. I'm pretty sure there's a podcast out there probably called Critics Suck, but that's okay. Mm. That's their podcast. Where it's not that bad. Welcome to the show. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Now, let's get to the breakdown here. And we need to start at the one constant of everything, and that's Tim Roth. Um, we talked about the comparison between what it would have been like with Buscemi, but Tim Roth as Tim Roth for you. How is this? Love him. Um, okay, first of all, in in the credits, even just the opening of this movie where he's shedding his Mr. Orange suit <laughs> and trading it for the blue bellboy um, uniform was brilliant. Oh, absolutely. The, yeah. the credit sequence is brilliant. It's one of those like animated, um, but it tells the story and it was beautifully right done. Bat, yeah. Beautifully done. Loved it. Almost Pink Panther-esque, that yes. opening credit sequence. Thank you, because mm-hmm. I was racking my brain trying to figure out like where I've seen that stylized opening before. Yeah, um, straight up Pink Panther-esque. Yes. And of course, like, you know, Pink Panther, another one of those movies that, you know, well, especially Pink Panther too, we'll probably end up talking about this, but, you know, what Steve Martin did to kind of bring that franchise back, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed it but yes the pink panther <laughs> style opening um i i will admit as i was watching tim roth especially in the first part and as we do the breakdown obviously we're talking tim roth now but we're going to go through this segment by segment because you do really have to kind of consider this as four different films because there are four different styles if you watch them especially if you know that you know who's directing you can kind of pinpoint certain things here and there but tim roth of course is the unifying factor across everything and I will admit, you know, upon watching this, you know, as we were prepping our notes and, you know, really looking at it critically instead of just enjoying it as a movie. At first, I was like, why did we like this film? Because he had a very, and it may be the, the, the best analogy I could come up with, at least for the beginning of the film. He was almost Mr. Bean-esque in, in his, you know, physical performance with the, the the quirky looks and the the posing and not really saying that much in the first part of the film obviously as the evening goes on he gets a little bit more manic and a little bit more um just over but he, it, it did feel a little you know discount mr bean off the front okay but i think that was part of the humor of it mm-hmm. um because I'm sorry, but if you're the only employee on for the night and you're catering and pandering to like just a hotel full of crazy mm-hmm. and it keeps getting worse and worse and his night goes on and he descends into madness, um, by the time he gets like, yeah, by the time he's being injected with God knows what. <laughs> <laughs> And he has just had to deal with, you know, um, you know, the hotel is now on fire. Um, he needs to call the police in because they found a dead prostitute. Like, and and this, I mean, okay, the first the first scene, his day starts out quite wonderful. I think. I mean, he, you know, hooked yeah. up with a witch. Well, why not? Um, and and the, and then the second. One being the uh, the wrong man, <laughs> being involved in some marital, I don't know, role play kind thing. of thing. Yeah, uh, um, it, the night gets worse and worse. He gets madder and madder, and just he is so funny. 
his physical humor, Mm -hmm. his delivery of his lines. Like you could just, you could just tell the script writing for the, I almost want to call them interstitials between the movies. Yeah. Right. Um, It was so funny. I I will say that because the fact that there was still a little bit of that, you know, animatedness by the time you got to the last segment, you know, it at least carried the personality through. And I'm glad that it wasn't discount Mr. Bean all the way through. So that, but that's what I'm saying. Like at first I was a little like put off, but then again, um, I have issues with that first segment and we'll get to that in a little bit, but I think, it worked to set up his personality at the beginning of the night and then it progressed and that worked out well. And that's the thing too. Like when you, when you're playing this role, you know, in four shorter films, basically with four different directors with four different touches to the whole thing, you have to really commend Tim Roth for being able to show that progression through the whole thing. I think too, it helped to see him as a bit of a quirky mm-hmm. type character right off the cuff. Um, in almost an antiquated hotel in an antiquated, you know, bellboy uniform with the, almost the, the, the vintage Hollywood prestige that the hotel once had and it definitely shouldn't have right now. Like it's exactly even the pep talk that the previous, um, or I guess there was a shift change. Yeah. Right. And then the, um, the pre-existing bellboy was giving him kind of a almost, I don't know if it was an advice session or a pep talk or if it was part of his on the job training. <laughs> I don't know. Cause was this not his, was it his first night? I, I can't remember. It was first, like, I don't think it was, but it's one of those things where, because you know, they would not leave someone on their first night alone on new year's Eve. They no, there's no way that could happen. Well, and all I can say is how is it possible that all of this is happening sequentially in one night in one hotel i mm-hmm. mean <laughs> that's with, that's the worst some, shift you've got with, to take with some crossover but you know we can kind of get to that in a little bit um but yes i think he for 1995 he is the best actor for this role buscemi would have been okay but i think it was more fun with tim roth in that role i think you're i think you're spot on on that one let's talk about the first part of this uh the missing ingredient um, personal opinion, this is the weakest of the four segments, but there are still silver linings in this. You're, you're giving me that look like you don't think so. I, I would say the wrong man really? was my weakest. Yeah. I don't know. I, Interesting. There, there was just something about this segment because, I mean, to a point because how, you know, what happens to Ted in this... By the way, we're going to spoil the crap out of this film, but... If you haven't seen it already. Yeah, you are exa- you are at this point 27 years behind. Go so. find the VHS copy. <laughs> go find that one blockbuster in wherever it is and go rent it. That's, that's all I got to say. Um, but I think as far as the casting went, and this is the part with Madonna in it... Um, and we're talking 1995 Madonna here. So we're talking, you know, a high level, like a level actressing, probably shortly after League of Their Own kind of Madonna, before we had the disaster that was swept away. You still had top level Madonna, but it felt like she was there barely. I, you know what? 
first of all, I, I liked this. This would definitely be my third favorite. And that's only because there's no competition, mm-hmm. no contest between uh, Tarantino and Rodriguez's portion of this. So really, out of the last two, this is my favorite. And I love, I love the introduction of all of the characters. I, I think this um, definitely had to be the first of the stories that they tell um, just because of how it, you know, um, it does. the entry, the entrance that each one of the witches made mm-hmm. really displayed their personality. It, it does ease Ted into the evening because I think if you did start, I mean, Personally, if I'm talking strength of segments, I would probably start this with uh, with the, the wrong man and then go into this and then go into the misbehaviors. Um, but I think, again, for me, this one felt the weakest, but it does make sense to ease him into it. And you had phenomenal actresses in this. Uh, you had Valeria Galena and Ioni Sky. I mean, Ioni Sky was brilliant in say anything and it was really good to, to see her in this as well um and just the the interplay i think between her and tim because you know she's gotta get get with ted so they can you know finish the spell kind of thing and there was there was a there was a sweetness to it i i think it had to be ioni sky with ted because i don't think any of those other witches that would have played as cute as it did no, and I loved Lily Taylor. Mm-hmm. I loved how she basically like just she was so confident and she just went into the hotel and she's like, I just want you to know I know where I'm going. <laughs> like, you know, like she just commanded. Yeah. She was, I think, the strongest and probably the smartest of all the witches. And that was kind of nice, too, because that meant you had a Lily Taylor Ioni Sky reunion from Say Anything, which let all honesty, they say anything is one of those, you know, pitch perfect, rom- you know, romantic comedies from like the 80s. Uh, so to see those two back together again, that was kind of cool. Uh, and Valeria Galena. I mean, if you don't know who she is, go watch uh, Hot Shots uh, and Hot Shots Part 2 because she is priceless in that. Um, but as like the leader of the witches, uh, in order to be able to bring their, their, their fellow witch back from being turned to stone. Um, you know what it is? And I think, I think this has to be pointed out. Um, and this is just from a pure, like sound geek point of view is that, and I think the part of the problem with why I didn't like this segment so much is the sound in it like the sound effects the the almost bewitched style kind of noises when they're when they're doing all their spells and whatnot i'm just like really 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 but i thought it was cute (laughs) i thought i thought it was i thought it was absolutely perfect for what it is and i think bewitched maybe might be um at least as far as a sound design but I mean, again, it was, I mean, it could have been so much darker 
Like with having but it, no, it couldn't have been guard. Yeah. Well, no, no, but they made it fun. Mm-hmm. They made it fun, and I think that was. Um, I think that was. I, it was fun. Mm-hmm. It was so much fun. It did have some of the levity of, and of course, you know, going later, you know, twenty plus years into the future, like some of those early episodes of One Division, where it had that 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 lightness to it. Which, yes, absolutely, if you're going to ease Ted into a night of insanity, this is definitely the way to go. And their and their um their potions or their little lyrics. Limericks. Mm-hmm. Oh um, yes, we're so cute. The scripting was actually quite fun. Yes, I will. I will give you that. Um, let's move on to the next segment. The wrong man. Not my favorite. Not your favorite. No. Huh? So- and I don't think I would have led with that one either. I, I, I can't see how that would have because again, it was the introduction of all of the witches. It was mm-hmm. the introduction of Ted, and you know, and and he had to start the night off like on a good note. Because he went into um, this room, well, room room four, room four, room four hundred four. This was four hundred four, and uh, <laughs> not four hundred nine. No, four four hundred four was not found. Never go to four hundred four. Right now, there's a bunch of internet internet geeks going. Oh, they can't find four hundred four. Because of course, that's the internet error code for you can't find something. But. I think it was uh, it was important for for Ted to go into that situation, um, you know, pretty happy. Mm-hmm. He started out happy anyway. Well, you know, I, I only Sky has that effect on people, right? Um, but I will say, as far as the wrong man goes, and I know you didn't you weren't a fan of this segment as far as you know, in comparison to the other the other three, but David Proval as as Siegfried, the husband, he really was a ton of fun to watch in this. He was manic. Man, he was all over the place. <laughs> I couldn't tell if he was like, I don't know. Hopped if he up was going to snap at some point or if he was actually going to die. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, this is why you don't do drugs, kids. Just don't do that. <laughs> but of course, it it's... You know, it also had Jennifer Beals as uh, the wife who was tied up. By the way, who is the only person who appeared in two different stories in this film. Um, but I think the play between David Proval and Jennifer Beals, the fact that she like this was like the, yeah, I'm here and you're going to play along because this is what we do. Like her calmness counteracted his manicness, I, I think, very well. Well, interestingly enough, Jennifer Beals was actually the wife of the director, uh, Alexander, Alexander Rockwell, Rockwell yeah. at this point. I did not know that. Divorced a year after this movie came out. So maybe, I don't know, maybe well, she she improvised the uh, <laughs> the final um, the final spiel on... Uh, well, I mean, if, if bondage is what happens on Bring Your Wife to Work Day, uh, there, there's, I'm sure there's a reason there. Um, yeah, I didn't appreciate you tying me to the chair here. <laughs> you're going to sit, you're going to watch this, and you're going to like it. <laughs> By the way, this is what I have to do for most sci-fi films. <laughs> you know, Tarantino, we're fine. She's good. She'll sit down. You want to watch a Star Trek? Get the buttons out there and tie her to the chair. Star Wars, the toothpicks are actually implanted into my eye <laughs> eyelids. Anything done by the asylum, I'm just actually <laughs> using staples on her eyelids. It's it's kind of like a clockwork orange with the you know, it's like ah! <laughs> Welcome to our world. This is how we move it here. <laughs> it's not that bad. 
Uh, but it it, de- it definitely did bridge, I think, very well, too, because this is the start of where things start to go downhill. And if you're going to order it this way, then yes, this this has to be the beginning of the downhill slope for Ted. Um, I will say, and I, I need to point this out, too. Um, actually, no, I'm going to point this out on the next segment because Twitter did speak about this one as well. Um I'm intrigued. Carrie did have to look away at one point uh, when Ted was kind of half hanging in, half hanging out of the uh, the uh, the bathroom window. By the long-haired way, long-haired yuppie scum. He's he works at the hotel. I need to point this out. Ted works at the hotel. He knows he's in room four hundred four, which means he's on the fourth floor. Where the hell was he going? Hanging out the window. <laughs> Like, ser- like, seriously. Okay. Where did you think you were going to go? Interesting. Because I was wondering how many floors this hotel actually had and what floor the penthouse would have been. It didn't look that high a hotel considering where the arrow was when they showed the exterior, which, okay, I will admit I laughed at that little thing. <laughs> it's... I I I have a thing for font humor. I I will I will fully admit <laughs> font humor is my is is my jam. I get it. It's fun. Um again, a Kevin Smith reference when Mark Hamill comes out in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. It's like, "Hey kids, it's Mark Hamill." Like again, font humor all day long. Kevin Smith, please do another four rooms. That's again, we're just putting it out there. Um I think the segment I personally associated with the most is the misbehaviors because I don't know how many times I can hear Antonio Banderas in my head when I say to our children, don't misbehave. Don't misbehave. <laughs> oh my God, this was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Your thoughts on the misbehaviors. Oh my God, I loved it. Um, what I loved, I think even more was when um, he did the little tip of the hat to this movie mm-hmm. um, in uh, Spy Kids 2 with the, the hair combing scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, there there's so much to unpack here um, with the misbehaviors. I will say, and I'm glad you brought up Spy Kids because I actually had this in my notes, is that it, it just goes to show how good a director... Robert Rodriguez is, you know, the old saying in movies, you know, uh, never work with pet with animals and never work with kids. Right. Robert Rodriguez, as a director, has a way of bringing out some really fun performances um, with kids who are uh, just breaking into the business. Because uh, for the kids, uh, uh, Danny Vadusco, again, I apologize if I if I butcher any names, Danny Faduco and Lana McKissick, this was, for both of those kids, this was their first movie. Uh, Danny Faduco also starred in The Crow City of Angels later on, um, but hasn't acted since 1996. Lana McKissick, however, still acting today, uh, doing some TV work, doing some voice work, including... Uh, the voice of the Mistress of Flame in Transformers, the Combiner Wars. So I have, anytime there's Transformers mentioned, I have to mention Transformers. So that that has to kind of go out there. Um, and of course, obviously, Antonio Banderas. I mean, there's just that, 
that 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 working relationship, that friendship between Robert Rodriguez and Antonio Banderas. And he looked like he was having so much fun with that role. Oh, my God. So much fun. And again, keeping it real with the Kevin Smith rule, you work with your friends. Mm -hmm. And I love, too, how um, Selma Hayek was the dancer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. She was called in basically as a favor, um, if you will, to they realized that they needed um, a dancer uh, to to flip the channel. When right? you need a sexy dancer, you call Selma call Hayek. Call Selma Hayek. And I love, love, love that, again, it's the work with your friends rule. Also, uh, Kevin Smith knows that if you need a sexy dancer, you call Selma Hayek going back to dogma. There you go. <laughs> we are talking a whole ton of Kevin Smith in a movie that Kevin Smith is not really, you know, even remotely involved in uh and i'm all here for it um but it is it's like this movie uh, again this is when the manicness really kind of kicks in every parent i think can relate to this this part of the film um it's again to me it's the second best part of the whole movie um but yeah there's just just such insanity that goes on and first of all what parent leaves their kids in a hotel to watch tv with the bellboy chicken in every half hour like you know something you don't leave your kids for five minutes <laughs> let alone half an hour intervals with, with with the bellboy checking in yeah well okay did the little guy not grab the lit cigarette and <laughs> Smoke it in front of his dad? Well, clearly the father is not exactly father of the year, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, uh, there's there's some bad choices there to begin with, yes. Um, But, yeah, like... You, you had to expect something bad. But, but the whole segment... I mean, the kids played it up so well. So much fun. And and just the... You know, the... the, You're going to do what my dad says you're going to do. And you're going to like it. Because we paid you $500. Also... Clearly, Ted will do anything for money. Uh, let's see here. He's going to have sex with a witch in the first segment. He's going, did he get paid for that? He, he, remember, because that as the witch, he came in and the witches gave him a little extra money uh, to make Ioni Sky happy, to make her smile, to make her smile. Of which then he starts to do his whole Mister Bean thing, which was just so awkward and funny and cute. Um, I genuinely think that. They had a little bit of a crush thing going because he did promise to call her after. Well, well remember too when uh, when they went up in the elevator, he couldn't he couldn't stop kind of looking over at her because he was bewitched. He was he was absolutely bewitched. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that sound plugged into my board. Okay, <laughs> um, but yeah, the misbehaviors was is just such chaotic fun. Um, this is where Twitter. Has spoken though. Um, Sean Faust has chimed in with vomiting after finding the dead hooker is incredible. Full disclaimer here, dear listeners, my lovely wife, Carrie, cannot for the life of her watch a vomit scene in a film. Nope. It triggers the sympathetic reflex, like to the point of like, when we did the bubble, 
when we watched the bubble for, <laughs> for the last episode, it was, you know, that because that scene comes up and like everyone's vomiting on everyone. And it's like, yep, no, no, no. Just tell me when it's done. Tell me when it's done. Yep. Yep. Full disclaimer. Carrie and vomit on TV. Just not, not good. Not good. Not, not good. No. Although definitely needed to happen because you know, that that's all part of the freaking and I'm surprised he hadn't vomited himself earlier when he got vomited on in the previous thing clearly bellboys deal with a lot of vomit apparently <laughs> but this is why you you're not the only one to work on new year's eve never 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 um moving on actually before we get to the man from hollywood we need to talk about that phone call to his boss and the fact that that's marissa tomei as margaret who picks up the phone first this you know what's funny i i will admit my favorite part was the man from hollywood you know misbehaviors is up there i think that phone call segment i i thoroughly enjoyed more than the previous two segments i loved it i absolutely loved that it tied like it it really was kind of that recap of the movies thus far Mm -hmm. and it led so beautifully into the penthouse scene yeah and it's it's almost like you know when you're playing pinball and you have to pull the the plunger back in order to be able to 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 shoot that last shot and you know it's your last ball so you put you put a little extra into the plunger in order to be able to 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 shoot it out um this kind of felt that way just that that recapping the whole night realizing just how much of a night it's been aside from my only sky um but like really really this you know it's the build-up to the to, to the finale and i think it needed to happen you know and the fact that people were playing like rambo on a on a nintendo or a sega genesis or whatever they were playing like it's just so new year's eve 1995 everyone is completely wasted and all you can do is play nintendo well interestingly enough did you know that a lot of the um actors mm-hmm. and i say actors with finger quotations <laughs> those were actual friends film uh friends of quentin tarantino's yeah brought in for the role it just goes to show how much of a passion project this film was like this this wasn't meant to be a big cinema film this wasn't meant to be you know pulp fiction or reservoir dogs this this was supposed to be for fun this was fun and clearly everyone was having fun we talk about tarantino we now need to get to the man from hollywood i mentioned at the beginning of the show that bruce willis was uncredited for this film his hairstylist was his hairstylist was but that's because he didn't get paid for this but the actors guild didn't like that so he was like all right well don't credit me and they're like okay that's the truth so again passion project he's bruce friggin willis though right like does he does he need to get paid for this? It just no, goes, he it, was doing a favor for his friend. It just goes to show how cool, how freaking cool Bruce Willis is. The man. Absolutely. Um, but yes, let, let, let's go to you, the man from Hollywood. The man from Hollywood, interestingly enough, was um, based on the writings of... Uh, Roald Dahl. Yeah, right? Like, the, Roald freaking Dahl. Actually, the man from the South. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, when I, when I, when I read that, and that was only recently that I uncovered that little tidbit of information, I originally thought that it was Tarantino having fun, kind of just showing, you know, the, the, I don't know, the dark and insane side of having way too much money. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I read that, I was like, oh, because then I'm like, it kind of took away a lot of, I don't know, the creativity or the... Um, Spontaneity of it. Spont- yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will admit, I was watching, I mean, aside from really appreciating tarantino dialogue and then let's be honest that is the biggest selling point to a tarantino film is tarantino dialogue and this is all the tarantino that could tarantino in this short segment um but as a as a as a film geek as a production geek um i really really appreciated the length of the one takes in this like all the steady cam work the fact that it's it felt very roaming point of view-esque and you know, you didn't really see too much of that as far as the rest of the, as the other segments. And it really kind of stood out, not just as a story point, not just as a what's going on kind of thing. Um, also, Ted will do anything for money. Proof positive once again. And you notice how the page just keeps going up and up and up. Um, but as far as, as, a, as a production geek goes, to see that many long takes through the whole thing which means that all the actors were either improving or I'm, I'm sure there probably was some improvident with with regular beats and then everyone was just kind of riffing along the way like it did it felt so I don't, I don't even know what the word is but it, it it's it just played to the film geekiness that you know Tarantino has. Absolutely. I mean, the, the scripting, exactly how it was written, was um, to essentially reenact mm-hmm. something that... Um, yeah, so the whole thing is like the, they're, they're partying in this hotel room in this penthouse drinking Cristal, um, and then, you know, the, this... I think it's like a Twilight Zone episode comes on um, where the this bet happens in the episode. So they decide to make the bet in real life. But then, you know, they need someone to 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 be the axe man, the hatchet man. Right. The cut guy to chop off the finger if uh, the guy doesn't complete the bet to light the cigarette, to, to light the Zippo the ten Zippo. times. Yeah. The, the lucky Zippo. And yeah, like. A, you can see stupid rich people doing this kind of thing in a penthouse on New Year's Eve because they're stupid and rich. Um, that's kind of the the beautiful absurdity of it. Um, but again, yeah, I'm just I, I'm just always appreciative of you know the, the different film styles that Tarantino brings in, and I think that's why. Um, you know, speaking of Tarantino films, I personally preferred Kill Bill Volume One over Kill Bill Volume Two. I realize Volume Two had more of the Tarantino esque dialogue. Volume 1, however, showcased more of Tarantino's appreciation of different cinema styles, and this really played into that as well. There is a crime in this film, though. Not in the film, but this film is the subject of an absolute travesty. The dead hooker that moves and breathes? No. And it's related to the Oscars. I'm going to put 
two words together and we'll see if you click in. Combustible Edison. The band that put together the soundtrack for this film. Um, first of all, the main theme song for Go is if you're not humming that song uh, after watching this, uh, there's something wrong with your ear holes. It was actually used in um, Secretaries. I'm not familiar yeah, the, with the show, but um, it was it was played in mm-hmm. uh, one of the characters' cars. But here's the thing, okay? The song, Vertigogo, was submitted for consideration for an Academy Award. But it was disqualified by the Academy, okay? Because of, quote-unquote... This is according to IMDb and Wikipedia. Because of its incomprehensible lyrical content, despite the fact that the band submitted a lyric sheet with their best written approximate their best written approximation of the lyrics. So however you, you know, write down like I, I get it, but no. No. That song, catchy as hell and to just to make things worse okay i i got i got a beef to pick with the academy on this one here because the winner of best original song that year at the oscars was colors of the wind from pocahontas and if you want to know how absurd that is it beat out you've got a friend in me from toy story how does Colors of the Freaking Wind from Pocahontas beat out You Got a Friend in Me and Vertigogo is, isn't even allowed into that. You also had uh, Moonlight from Sabrina. Uh, you had Have You Ever Really Loved a Woman from Don Juan DeMarco, which, yes, that, that's still peak Brian Adams working with Michael, Ka- uh, Michael Kamen. And Dead Man Walking from Bruce Springsteen. How do you not put Vertigogo, which... Really, and and I'm and I'm going to say this here: the fun, most of the fun from this film lives and breathes in that soundtrack. And if you don't have that soundtrack, you don't have the fun of Four Rooms. Like the f- incomprehensible lyrical content. Really? No. Like, yes, I have get. Have they it. heard most mumble rap? Ah, uh, right, <laughs> right, like. Okay, award shows... Cannibal get, Corpse? No? Award shows get so much wrong. Looking at you, Grammys, and your Jethro Tull Best Metal you know, Award over Metallica, but... Okay, there is just always, every year, doesn't matter. There's always something so wrong about the decisions that they make in who wins and who, you know, isn't even a contender. Like... How does You've Got a Friend in Me not win, though? I, I, and that that is the major like, question. I, I can accept Vertigogo not winning the Oscar. I'm, I'm fine with that. But you, you to, to completely, you know, say, no, 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 no. I, I don't understand what they're saying. They're not saying anything. It's scat. It's, it's, it's jazz. It's, a, it's not supposed to be lyrics. Like, no. Like... Yeah. Really? I think, and again, I'm just putting it out there, thinking out loud is that, well, maybe because it had really, it it was, it didn't compare to anything. 
Like, because it was so unique, it would kind of be in a category of its own. I mean, I I could understand if, if they, if, I mean, I think the Academy might have, might have accepted them more on best original score, but, you know, it's, no, like. Just no. Just no. Vertigogo is an utterly catchy song, and the number of times it's been used in different things just goes to show how good a song it is. Um, the fact that the Academy turned this down as best for, for consideration. It's, it's, it's one thing you don't, it doesn't win. It doesn't win, it doesn't win. But you you don't even consider it because you can't, you, you can't understand. Like, really? I, I'm, get off my lawn. Tell the Academy to get off my lawn because that, that that's, a, that's a crime. That is a crime. But the combustible Edison four room soundtrack to you, like how how important was this for you in regards to this movie? Well, I have a CD copy. Mm-hmm. So do so, I. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many times I, I, I use this in college for projects, I, I will admit. Um, but yeah, it, it was because it was just so out there and different and fun and again if you just have a general you know typical orchestral score this isn't as fun well i mean that's the ongoing theme with tarantino like music that he picks for his movies Mm -hmm. is it's not your you know top 40 radio play yeah he digs in the crate and brings out stuff that it like it's a signature for him. It is. Very very much like it is for James Gunn when you think about the soundtracks to the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Because that's again, is very much a storytelling device. If you take a look at um, Baby Driver, the, the soundtrack there oh, is also love. a storytelling device. Combustible Ed- Edison's soundtrack for this is as much a character of the film as the characters in the film. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Uh, and you you don't have as good a film without it. Um, so now in looking at all of this, now I'm just curious. I'm going I'm to put this out there because, again, this is four different small films as far as, you know, as a whole, the critics looked at this at 13%. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn you into the critic here. If you had to grade each story, how would you grade them? The Wrong Man, um, yeah, it was very low for me. I would give it the 13% for really? The Wrong Man. See, I th- I, it did nothing for me. I think I'd give The Wrong Man probably about a 55. Wow, that's high. Mm-hmm. Um, then next, uh, The Missing Ingredient, I would probably put it at an even 50. See, I'd, I'd bring that down to about a 35 um again only because it 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 didn't mesh with me as well although i will i will give bonus marks for both valerie galena and ioni sky i think those two were the best part of that i thought it was a fun segment um so then that leads me to the misbehaviors Mm -hmm. and i loved that um I thought the kids were so brilliant and so confident. Mm-hmm. You know, if that was their first movie and... <laughs> okay, picture it. You're 
what, maybe between eight and ten. And you yeah, get about that, yeah. brought into a film set. You As you, your first film. You win the audition. You get called back. And, okay, kids, um, we're going to have you pretend to smoke, drink, light a hotel room on fire, and basically, <laughs> um, you know, pull, like... Was it like a gangster attitude? My father paid you to take care of us. It was, I mean, not only that, children, but you're also going to find a Find a death hooker and stab a bellboy with a needle in the leg. Oh, and I love the line too where the, you know, Tim Roth is on the phone what with the police and he was calling in the body. He's like, there's a dead whore. Don't call her that. (laughs) Like- Oh my God, <laughs> love. I I thought the, the children were brilliant. They, oh my God, they earned what? I, I would give that in the 70s, 80s. I'd, I'd put it at about an 81, 82. Yeah. Would have been higher if I didn't have trauma every time I hear, don't misbehave. You know what? <laughs> Antonio Banderas was amazing. The actress who played his wife... I, there was something so cold about her that I was just like, are these even her children? Like, it literally made me, like the, the line where she's like, these kids are getting expensive. There's a backstory there where it's like. I was yeah. like, I don't know, man. Is she like the, she's like the stepmom? The, I like, th- it felt like she was the stepmom, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I I don't know. Like she couldn't care less about those children and she just wanted to go get her drink on. I, I will say, and, and before we get to the, the man from Hollywood, as far as ranking that one goes, I will say that I like the fact that they didn't spend, uh, you know, uh, too much time, you know, giving you backstory on all these characters and no, you're, you're with Ted and you just get like parachuted into these situations uh, not knowing anything of what's going on, and the viewer kind of needed to be as as discombobulated and you know stranger in a strange land as Ted was in every single one of these situations. I think that part, the fact the fact that they didn't backstory too much, is very was very well done on all four segments parts. Well, speaking of backstory, what the hell was the deal with Madonna and her? daughter with her daughter with with alicia witt yeah i'm i'm not quite sure and it wasn't really explained but i think and that's maybe part of the why madonna got singled out because there were there was this dangling storyline that that didn't really you know didn't really need to be there it really didn't uh it didn't because ioni sky is the story in this one um and it felt like it was almost overshadowed a little bit by Madonna's presence in Alicia Witt as her daughter. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I'm with you on that one. Uh, and maybe that's why it also didn't stand out because there was so much that could be there and I maybe it just needed to be streamlined. But again, that's just me. That's just me. I'm, I'm the grumpy guy who's still mad about Combustible Edison. Um, man from Hollywood, you're ranking this one. What are you giving this? Loved it. Well, if I gave the misbehaviors in, into the 80s, and I agree with your 81, um, to me, this made the movie. Mm-hmm. This was the segment of the movie. Um, and not just because I'm a huge Tarantino fan. But you are. But 
I am. <laughs> um, but really this, um, oh, it was, it was so the cherry on the top of a wonderfully iced cake. The, per- like, the perfect curtain drop. Yep. Absolutely. Um, this is the, this is the cherry on the marzipan on the, you know, fluffy white. And this is why cake. you should eat before we do a podcast. Because clearly you're <laughs> mm, hungry. Cake. Mm, cake. <laughs> um, so I, I would give it, oh my God, I would definitely put it in the 90s. Now, before I say that, what was the audience score? It was still in the 60s, The right? audience score was 69%. I have really set the bar with the 80 on the misbehaviors. So with that said, I have to give it at least 10% more. I'm, I'm looking at the 90s. Yeah, I, I would say it's about a 90% right there. And I think if you, ta- if you take a, a look at the balance, 69% as an audience score for the whole movie makes a lot of sense. Critics are wrong. But now it's time. It's time. Carrie, who is your MVP without stalling? Yes. Of four rooms. No contest. I would give 100% to Mr. Tim Roth, Ted the Bellboy. Hmm. Not surprising. Not surprising. His, his delivery, his humor, his facial expressions, his, like I said, just how he carried through or or interwove these stories Mm -hmm. and played it so incredibly well. His recap on the phone with Kathy Griffith, like it, he was amazing. He was so funny, like so entertaining to watch. For me, the MVP is not on screen. For me, the MVP is Combustible Edison. I am <laughs> not not just because the Academy snubbed them, because the Academy. Okay, um, there's something about um, when a score becomes more than just music in the film, when it's when it in itself is a character, and you take a look at you know the, the Christopher Nolan Batman films. The Hans Zimmer score for that is as much of a part of the the storytelling as you know Christian Bale is as Batman. You think about Star Trek, right? You say Star Trek, the first thing you hear is it's either the original Star Trek, um, like the the Alexander Courage opening theme, or you're hearing the ne- the Next Generation theme song. Um, Star Wars, you're hearing that that opening um, John Williams fanfare. Jaws, the shark, and the 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 the, the dun and dun and like again, that in itself as a character, I think Combustible Edison deservedly needs to be recognized um, by. I will be the Academy and say thank you for creating such a. a not iconic, but definitely a character-driven or driving soundtrack for this. You're, you now need to go back and listen to this, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was such a fun soundtrack. It was such a fun movie. And definitely worth the rewatch. Forget what the critics say. The audience is right. Uh, you're going to have a ton of fun if you watch this. Now, you guys know the drill. 
if you think there is a movie out there that is unfairly maligned or that is just so bad that there's no way in hell that we can find anything good to say about it hit us up on twitter at not that badcast let us know we'll watch it we will dissect it and we will find the good things to say about those movies the a grades in those b movies carrie lovely as always we will go get you the cake uh kevin smith thank you for listening hopefully you you go off and make that film this is it's not that bad until next time everyone take care it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.